Hey guys, welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm speaking with Daka Keltner. Daka is a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, the founding director of the Greater Good Science Center and editor of its magazine, Greater Good. He's the author of the books, The Power Paradox, How We Gain and Lose Influence and Born to be Good. After his PhD from Stanford in 1989, Dak has been devoted to the study of emotions like embarrassment, compassion and awe that make us fully human, as well as evolutionary approaches to social hierarchies and power. So we are going to jump into many of those things today. But yeah, first of all, hello and thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. It's great to be with you, Duncan. I actually just, the second I started, I was like, I, I heard on a couple of interviews um, where I was watching some other stuff and the person pronounced it Dakar and I was like, is, did I actually get that right? You did. Because uh, I, I suddenly realized I said it three times in the intro. So if it was wrong, then I was really hammering home, you know, just like doing it wrong three times in a row. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. Now, eight or nine years ago, when you, um, when you uh, did the book uh, Born to be Good, yeah. um, one thing that sort of became acutely aware was actually uh, how good human beings are. And yeah. that's obviously, especially in light with like everything that's going on at the moment, you know, you turn on yeah. the news, the politics, that's quite a yeah. reassuring thing. This is what actually your research told you that actually human beings are essentially good. Yeah, you know, and it is a very timely thing to remember today, right, with everything that's going on that, um, you know, there's a, in the past uh, 30 years or so, there's been this big shift in evolutionary thinking where we've realized that. We're a very caring species. We care for these hyper-vulnerable offspring. We're a very empathetic species compared to our primate relatives. We know what others feel and really imitate a lot. We are a very collaborative and cooperative species. We're, we're able to work together on just about everything. And then for me, Duncan, as you said in the introduction, what all of those shifts translate to is that we have these amazing what, you know, what Adam Smith called moral sentiments, things like compassion, gratitude, awe, wonder, that really help us build up strong societies. And what that tells us, you know, for people who are really struggling today with Brexit in England and the rise of right wing political movements in other parts of Europe and the United States, is we have these very powerful old tendencies that I think can countervail those more base sides to human nature mm. and slight like shift but like one thing i found fascinating through um learning about some of your work was like just even though i've, I've heard about it obviously lots and lots but yeah. um i'd love to just to chat for a little bit about like oxytocin sure. and just why is why is this why is this such a, just a special chemical well I, I mean you know so when when you say that you're born to be good like the title of my book, right? That that's a strong claim because it says we we have these innate tendencies to to be kind or to share or what have you. And then what that further posits is that we should have physiological systems in our bodies and chemicals that help us be good to each other. And and my labs really worked very uh, assertively on that thesis. And one of the most amazing of the chemicals that help us be good to each other is this little neuropeptide called oxytocin it's produced in your brain stem it goes up into your brain and then it all flo also floats through your blood right and it goes to tissues and target organs in your body and you know oxytocin is involved in mothers give birth it's involved in milk letdown 
when little baby, when moms see their little babies and like it's so cute, you know, and it's covered in the post-birth fluid and stuff. That's oxytocin tricking the mom into you know being good to that thing. Uh, and and just study time and time again shows it helps us connect to, cooperate with, share with uh, other individuals who we feel are part of our tribe, right? Uh, there are little controversial findings right now about whether it helps us connect to people who are really different from us, and, and the evidence is mixed there, but it really does open us up to to be good to others. And so this is obviously the fact that it survived for sort of millions and millions of years of evolution and it's resulted in us having this. It's obviously yeah. like, I mean, is it is it fair to say that because of that, then obviously it's got a massive evolutionary benefit of, you know, there's there's to having it, obviously. It, yeah, it does. You know, so we know, you know, it's really important for humans to cooperate, right? Uh, be it in taking care in the evolutionary sense of our vulnerable offspring or, you know, cooperating in food gathering or the like. And, and there are studies that show if I just take a little whiff of this oxytocin with a nasal spray, right? I share more with you. I, if I'm in a romantic partnership, I forgive you and I don't have them as much conflict with you. I mean, it's amazing. And we in our lab have traced levels of oxytocin back to particular genes, for example, on the sixth chromosome that influences how much oxytocin you have circulating in your body. And, and those genes predict more empathy and openness to others. So, so this is a, one of the most direct pieces of evidence for the thesis we've evolved to be good. I love that. I, I, found, I found that hilarious, this <laughs> idea of this nasal spray with oxytocin, then you have it. I know. <laughs> yeah, maybe you know it's, <laughs> it's funny, Duncan, uh, when I was teaching this stuff, my, one of my undergrads pointed out that in England, of all places, they have fabricated sprays that you can spray oxytocin into the air. And <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna have to look that up. <laughs> now, I know, I know that um, something which is taken, obviously, like, it's a huge passion and interest, uh, uh, particularly at the moment, this topic of awe, um, yeah. this idea of, I think your um, definition was of being in the presence of something vast beyond current understanding. Yeah. What, what spawned this interest? Uh, and you know, in, in awe for you, what, what was kind of, what was the sort of seed that I've got you excited about that idea? Yeah. Thanks for asking that. You know, so one of the, the delights in studying human emotion, like I have is, um, in a way I get to be like William James, who's a, an important figure in American psychology and the brother of Henry James, a great writer and so forth. And, and, you know, James learned a lot about emotion through observing his own experience, right, as any human being does. And, and I've, uh, I have really drawn my studies of human emotion that I write about in Born to be Good and the Power Paradox from my own experiences. Like I got interested in oxytocin when I had young kids, you know, and I was like, God, you get so filled with love. What is the physiological process involved in that? And I would say, Duncan, I was raised in a um, kind of a wild family uh, in the late 60s in Laurel Canyon, Hollywood, California, pretty wild. <laughs> and and uh, it was a time filled with awe, you know, and a lot of my early and most formative experiences in my life were about awe, like, you know, hearing Martin Luther King or seeing political protests or um, going to art museums and being awestruck by 
the Dutch masters or later in my life when I was a young man, like going to Iggy pop and seeing Iggy pop and just like being transformed and the science, you know, and I, I would come out of these experiences and I'm like, I feel like I should do good for the world. I, sh I should work harder. I should be a good person. I should cooperate with others. Uh, I feel transformed. And there was no scientific study of that. And so my labs become obsessed with documenting how awe makes stronger social collectives. I mean, and talking about that, you know, some of what's been documented. I mean, there's now this research showing that awe yeah. actually moves us away from self-interest to actually yeah. being moving towards sort of being really engaged and you know, interest in the uh, like of the interest and the passions of others. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, so, you know, various scholars uh, in evolutionary circles and a little bit in economics have said, you know, in some sense, if we're this hyper social species, right, and we, we do best evolutionarily and then psychologically when we collaborate with others, um, you what one of the central problems is you have to put aside your self-interest to do that work. Right. If I'm going to be a good, you know, colleague at work, I don't I can't always be pursuing my own desires. Right. I have to advance the interests of others. If I'm going to be a good family member or a member of my community, same thing um, that people have called it the problem of collective engagement or what have you. And, and I think what we're starting to realize is that, that big parts of our brains and our psyches are really mechanisms that help us move away from self-interest and really value the interests of others. So awe is a classic example, right? We feel awe in collective situations when we're dancing or we're at a political rally or we're out in nature with friends or we're in a, a contemplative practice. And, and our studies show, you know, just brief experiences of awe, even something like watching planet earth, right? You just are awestruck by nature. You share more with other people. You give more to charity. You empathize better, right? You, um, you're, we've, we've got a lot of new data showing that you become more humble. And so we think that these emo this emotion of awe in particular sort of quiets the voice of self-interest and makes you better to other people. Yeah, I'm just thinking, when, when, you're, when you're saying that, and this isn't a question I've got already, but it's just like, if, if, we, if, if this is what the data is showing, like, I'm just trying, I'm trying to work out what a sort of a, a culture of awe would look like, you know, I'm trying to work out what kind of, <laughs> if, if, if we all kind of really internalize that idea and, you know, obviously yeah. decrease like, in like narcissism and, you know, abuses of power, that's obviously like one of them. But um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, I think a lot, I think that's one of the most interesting questions you can ask about this. And what you see is that cultures um, cultures do various things, subcultures, to harness these power, this powerful form of awe, these powerful effects of awe, right? So religion involves a certain amount of transcendent experience in temples and, and the like. So that's using this pro-social power of awe. Political movements, right? I remember when, uh, you know, people talk about being around political leaders or hearing Martin Luther King or when I personally saw Nelson Mandela when he'd gotten out of South African prison and I was awestruck and that solidified my commitment to that kind of cause. Even, you know, when you think about more um, youthful alternative forms of cultures, right? Rave cultures and 
you know, Burning Man here in Cal, you know, in the United States of like where you get together and you do these transcendent things. And again, they, they build the strength of the community through this interesting emotion. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess like, could it be used like, uh, I mean, if it's got that powerful connecting of people, I mean, could that be used yeah. for good or for bad? Like is in, in the yeah. wrong hands, is that maybe you're talking about big, I don't, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just making stuff up as I go along, but like, no. I guess like in the wrong hands, like if it's got that power to connect people, Right. The wrong, the wrong person behind it, or the right person behind it, it could do amazing things. But vice versa, yeah. could it do wrong? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that. So one of the things, and and I, that's a really important question today. Um, you know, when we're worried about the rise of right wing political tendencies, mm. um, you know, we do know we have a, a paper coming out that about a quarter of all experiences um, do do not have this kind of pro-social collaborative quality to them that you and I've been talking about. A quarter of them are fear-based and hierarchical where you really feel threatened, Mm -hmm. right? So you might imagine uh, in Hitler's Germany, although historians don't feel Hitler was terribly awe-inspiring or Stalin's Russia, Mm -hmm. they're like Stalin had this cult of personality and I suspect people felt awe Mm -hmm. toward the, the, whatever his, the grand, grandfather or whatever they call it. Yeah. But, um, that form of awe was very likely fear-based and, and really what we know is these fear-based forms of awe produce stress. They clamp down on creative thought. They, they make you more worried about risk and you, you push people away almost the opposite of the other spectrum of awe. Uh, and, and we really should worry about that. Right. It's interesting. I know, you know, we're so immersed in political issues here in the United States right now. Uh, surveys of the Trump supporters did, did not find they felt awe toward him. They just were like, we just want something to change, you know. So uh, so I'm not as worried about that here. For, <laughs> but it's a really important question. Yeah. And um, I know that. Um goosebumps. That's 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 something where like yeah. talking about that in terms of, I guess, one way to work out maybe i mean this is work out whether something's maybe positive or, or negative is just the age-old kind of thing of just listening to your body maybe you know yeah listening to your body and actually feeling like how does it feel and goosebumps is um goosebumps is a is, a, is an interesting topic what, what what's what have you been i know you've got in your um in your lab i think you've got one of the world authorities on goosebumps like that, that's just a great <laughs> title in itself so i wanted to say it yeah <laughs> Yeah, but one of my students is, is indeed the world authority on goosebumps, which, you know, she <laughs> is, is devoting her to it. But, you know, this is why the Darwinian perspective is so interesting. Just as you say, you know, Duncan, you start with a lot of a quirky physiological response and suddenly it tells you everything you want to know about, you know, social structures or moral tendencies or the like. So so we start, Laura Maruskin started with the the observation that pe- people feel goosebumps, right? They, they say like, oh, I was, you know, I was at this concert and when this vocalist sang this great part of a song, I got goosebumps or I was at a political rally and I got goosebumps or, you know, ooh, I walked by somebody I felt was really dangerous and I got goosebumps. And so what Laura did is a lot of work that, that really identified two different responses, right? And one is kind of the tingle you get that goes up the back of your neck, right? When you feel inspired. The other is this 
shudder, this cold shiver that you get when you feel repulsed, right? I don't know if you've ever had that, but you, you know, you may have this, you know, when I hear um, the bigotry of, of um, Donald Trump, I get this shudder like, oh, God, I, I, it's almost a fearful foreboding. Um, so Laura pulled those two responses apart. And it turns out most mammals have those responses. And one is where the shudder and the cold shiver uh, feels really evil, if you will, like you're in the presence of evil and you feel alienated. And then the good, the tingling response is when you feel more awe, when you feel inspired and empowered. So it's really interesting for, to, for just like you say, to use those two bodily responses to tell you important things about your social world, what makes you feel awe and where you think potential sources of evil are. And the body will tell you what right now, what's, what's exciting you right now? What are you, what, where's your, where's your mind at? What are you thinking about? What are you planning next? I don't know. What's, what's, yeah. yeah. What's, what's exciting you? Well, I, I think it's really two things. And, and one is, um, it really builds on your observation earlier, Duncan, which is that, you know, our lab has shown that if I feel awe, right, I go out and get some awe. Um, I'm better to people. I share more. I'm more curious about the world. I'm more creative. I, my inflammation response in the body, which is one of the most important predictors of strong health, is healthy. And in light of those findings, um, we've started this thing called the Great Outdoors Lab that is partnering with different ecological groups. And the main goal is to get, you know, there are certain parts of our society who are awe deprived, right, in the United States. Um, poor kids in urban areas do not see nature. And a lot of people have written about this, and we're starting to document the benefits of getting out in, in nature for poor kids. And then we're also looking at veterans in the United States. The United States has over 2 million veterans. They're very often really suffering, right, from coming back from Iraq or what have you. So we're giving them those opportunities, studying it scientifically. And I really hope that it, it, it seeps into healthcare, right? That a doctor, if you go and you say, God, I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling uh, my body hurts, or I'm feeling, um, you know, I have a, an inflammation process that's hyperactivated. The doctor should tell you, like, well, why don't you get outside for an hour a week? And we now know that really benefits people. So that's one. And then our lab is really interested in inequality. Um, as you know, you know, this has been in a 30-year period of rising inequality. The United States leads the world in inequality. And we're showing it's bad for health and marriage and racism and just about everything you would wish good for inequality is bad for so we're really starting to work on that the belief that kind of got popularized with a uh, sort of um gordon gecko uh the belief that sort of greed is good um yeah. how and, and i guess when when you hear that and i guess you know we it kind of almost becomes internalized and people genuinely believe that how, how dangerous do you feel that belief has been on our societies i you know Thank you for asking that, Duncan. You know, I mean, the, you know, science is useful very often when it can lead to evidence that takes on basic ideas we have, right? Uh, you know, and so 
you know, in, in the United States and, and in a lot of parts of the world, I suspect in parts of London and India and, you know, certainly when I, you know, taught in Beijing and, you know, elsewhere um, in Dubai, um, there is this idea that we are designed as greed machines to maximize our self-interest, right? And, you know, it's funny, um, I've been teaching the science of happiness, both at Berkeley and then on an online platform, and the data just disconfirmed that notion. So, A, for the individual, if I pursue materialism and, and greed, I become less happy, right? Uh, and studies show that time and time again, it's more important to prioritize experiences or connections with people. Uh, B, we know if I pursue greed, I create social structures that are unequal. And we know that unequal social structures make people less happy, right? Uh, and then I would even push out and say, you know, we have a serious climate change issue uh, that is only the current you know, presidential cabinet denies it in the world. Uh, and, and that comes out of the, this ethos of greed. And, and there are just very few data that say, you know, this is the overarching motivation. And we know that healthy people balance, right? They balance self-interest with other interests as we've been talking. And so I've, I'm really worried about, and, and that, that Gordon Gecko statement drives me nuts. <laughs> <laughs> um, one Thank start. you for bringing it up. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to counter that, which is, um, we'll start with the greed is yeah. good, but then to counter that, um, yeah. I, I thought it was such a beautiful study, um, which you mentioned, um, I think it was in your commencement speech, about scientists gave resources to individuals in 15 remote cultures uh, from the Amazon to Indonesia and those yeah. individuals, on average, gave away 40% of their resources just to strangers and just to share. Like, that's yeah. wonderful. Yeah, you know, and, 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 you know, I mean, thank you for bringing that finding up, Joe Henrik and his colleagues. You know, there are studies now of Felix Wernicken at Harvard University showing, you know, 18-month-olds will share stuff really intuitively. They'll help people who are in distress. It really seems like there's, there, you know, most people are inclined to share except the people who have most of the money. So <laughs> it's a, it's a sad irony of our, our 21st century. But I mean, if that is, if that is sort of the more um, intuitive kind of thing, and then yeah. I guess the, the greed thing is what, what we're, what's reinforced by whatever, like the media, yeah. what we're told, yeah. Yeah. then actually, I'm not sure which way around would be, would be healthier. Actually, probably the second, probably the other way around. But I guess at, at least if that's our nature, then I think that it's, it's hopeful that we can, certainly return to uh, a more sort of sharing compassionate yeah. uh, way. Very much so, Duncan. And, you know, it's there. Another study is very telling on this, which is this work by David Rand at Yale, where he had people, he gave people the opportunity to share resources with, with a stranger. And if you, if people made the decisions really fast and intuitively, they shared a lot. They shared over 50% of the resource. If you ask them to kind of think about what they should do, all of a sudden, Western culture kind of seeps into their mind and they're like, what did I learn in that economics class? And what was that speech by Gordon Gecko? Oh, I should keep stuff for myself. And they shared less. Um, and so I think that what that tells us is we have these deep intuitions. And then from my perspective, we need to refashion culture to, to make it more sharing, right? One in five people in the United States are in poverty. They're hungry. 
Uh, that shouldn't happen. And so we need to share more. And it's I, I take heart. I think that's what's happening with your generation. Um, younger folks in the United States are more interested in sharing. They're more oriented towards a better society. They're more skeptical, like you, of the Gordon Gecko thesis. My generation just said, oh, yeah, no, greed is good. Um, and and there, I think I think we'll see shifts uh, as your generation takes power. Let's hope so. <laughs> what does a fulfilled life mean to you? Yeah, you know, well, I, I think for me, the fulfilled life is um, acting on behalf of others and uh, really sort of a service-oriented approach to living. Um, and, you know, I struggle with that all the time for a lot of different reasons. But what really strikes me, Duncan, is these emotions we've been talking about, um, compassion, oxytocin, awe, probably you would add gratitude into the mix, right? Where you feel reverence for things that are given to you. You know, a lot of theorists have said that these emotions, not only do they, um, they help you be good to others and build strong communities, but in many ways, they're the foundation of the meaningful life, right? That a lot of philosophers from Greek philosophy to East Asian thought, Martha Nussbaum more recently have said, if you want to find the meaningful life, go find out what makes you feel compassion, right? Find out what gives you awe, uh, see where you feel gratitude, and then you're on your way. And I agree with that. What is one thing our listeners can do today to have a big impact on their lives? Well, I'll give you two. You know, one is, is go find a source of awe and make that a regular part of your life. For me, it's just getting out and looking at trees or hills, uh, or, be you know, beautiful gardens and cities. Um, and then the second is to just take a moment and uh, just think about what you're grateful for, right? And, you know, that will start to sharpen your focus on the, the things in this complicated world that really will give you sustaining meaning. Last but not least, how can people find out more about you and your work? And yeah, where can we send them? Well, I think, you know, the two books we've talked about, The Power Paradox and then Born to be Good, but then just as importantly is the Greater Good Science Center, greatergood.berkeley.edu has 15 years of material that are on these themes we've talked about. Daka, thank you so, so much. It's uh, yeah, been absolutely very illuminating and uh, I love it. I love, I, lo I love researching all our guests because every single time we just explore something a brand new angle a different way to look at things and i mean i just yeah it's, it's an absolute uh, it's a joy so thank you for saying yes and uh, for speaking with us today it's great being with you duncan i hope it happens again mm -hmm.